is that I'm here today to bring you God's Word. Okay, there's nothing from me, nothing I can add to God's Word. God's Word is perfect. And my prayer today is the same that I pray every time I come to the pulpit, which is kind of King James English, but it, uh, it rhymes and it's good for me. I always, I always say, all of thee and none of me. So I pray that today you would focus on God's Word and what it has to say. And I pray that what I have to say honors that. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is now the seventh sermon that I have preached directly on the book of James, and we've covered quite a lot of ground. So, before I go any further, I'd just like to take a moment to summarize the principal points of the previous verses. In James 1, verses 1 and 2, we see that as those saved by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we should seek to live the new life that we are given as slaves. I wonder if you remember that Greek word doulos, which means slave. Then we are apparently given a most bizarre instruction, which I think everybody's familiar with. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. We saw that God has many purposes for these trials because they test our faith, they humble us, reduce our dependence on worldly things, give us the hope of heaven, expose what it is that we truly love, God or the world, teach us the value of God's blessings, develop our spiritual muscles, and finally they help us to help others. The following verses, verses 3 to 8, speak further of how testing develops in us a quality of perseverance and the need for wisdom. We gain that wisdom from God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. But there is a qualifier because we have to ask in faith and not doubting. We must trust wholly in God to provide and not partially on Him and partially on ourselves. Verses 9 to 11 direct our attention to where real worth is in life, not in worldly possession, but in God and His service. Irrespective of our circumstances, the gift of eternal life in heaven through Jesus has a value that cannot be quantified in human terms, and we ought to treat it as such. In good times, in a bad to look, upwards to God and not inwards to ourselves. We must search our hearts to see where our trust lies in God or in wealth, and we should always guard our hearts against the seductive trap of materialism. Then in verse 12, there's a message about the way in which we endure suffering that marks us as children of a God and our motivation for doing so, which is the crown of life. Then verses 13 to 16 deal with how we should understand temptation, its source, the execution of sin and its consequences. For when sin reaches maturity, it gives birth to death. Yep. Now verse 17 concludes the section by showing that although man is flawed by sin, God is perfect and consistent in his giving. The Bible says all good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no alteration or shadow caused by change. James 1.18 turned into a sermon all by itself with a description of us as God's first fruits, that left us with a few very pointed questions. Well, what are our talents, and are we using them for God's glory? Does our behavior day to day show us to be a first fruit? If not, well, how can we change? 
And in what way does our gratitude to God for His salvation motivate us to work for Him? The section of verses 19 to 25 is what we do with the truths given to us by the Word of God. How do we deal with them inside and how does that inside work show up in our outside lives, our everyday lives? You know, our interpersonal behavior should be different because we should listen first, consider, and then speak, not just blurt it out like I often do. This section contained one of the best known and most direct instructions so far in the book. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deluding yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his own face in a mirror. He sees himself, then goes off and promptly forgets what he looked like. But the one who peers into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres and is not a hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, such a one shall be blessed in what he does. Hearing and doing are irrevocably tied together as part of being a child of God. And there are just no optional choices. And this being the case, we must consider whether we are obedient in both or whether we have to change in some way to obey. Do you remember what I said about this book? I had three things to say. We must study the Bible. We must study the Bible. And we must study the Bible. Finally, verses 26 and 27 brought us to the end of chapter 1. Our challenge was to examine our hearts to discover whether we are religious or real. Why do we attend church? What do we do when we leave? And are those things consistent here, there, or everywhere? With all that talk of religion in those verses, James made what seemed to be a little jump from his previous topic which was the importance of being doers, not just hearers of the word. But actually he didn't because he wanted us to see the danger of living only by doing or perhaps believing that doing is the be-all and end-all of religion. He wants us to see how genuine doing can only be driven by the gift of a new heart which is given to us when we accept Christ as our Savior. That brings us to the end of chapter 1. Eddie, um, would you mind handing out those papers that I gave you earlier? Uh, this is a test. It's going to be marked after the service. And depending on how you do, um, there might be a visit from the elders. <laughs> I see some looks of horror and hope. Okay, truthfully, there is no test. Thank you, Eddie. <laughs> I can see the people at the back saying, what are these pieces of paper? Because I picked them out of the garbage bin earlier. Okay. This is just a little stunt of mine. But there's a really important part, a really important point. <clears throat> the tongue and the lips are tripping over each other. Okay, there is an important point coming from the summary that I've just made. If we did do a test to see how much we'd remembered from the last five minutes, I think that there might be some embarrassment over the results. But I want to put my hand up and be the first to say that although I am the one who prepared these sermons, and in some cases I've delivered them more than once, I have great difficulty in remembering much of the detail. But this isn't what I'm aiming for. This isn't a bit of a rant about paying better attention. So where am I going? I want you to really pay attention here. James can sometimes be a little bit confusing. You know, on the surface, just to start off with, 
it might seem that he is preaching some contradiction to Paul's message of salvation by grace because of this great emphasis on works, on doing things. Actually, James is exposing the practical things about how we ought to live our lives after that point of grace. He wants us to develop a new philosophy of life that will bring us into alignment with the work that God starts to do in our lives immediately after we are saved. So, although it would be very nice, it isn't actually necessary for us to remember that there are eight good reasons to be joyful when we encounter trials. It is necessary for us, however, to know in our hearts to endure trials with the attitude that God is in control, He knows what He is doing, and as, that, as we cooperate with Him in the process of sanctification, there will be a good result. Not just in this life, but much more importantly, after we die. And I just couldn't help but make the point that we have to actively cooperate. I know I made that in my last sermon, but I want to say it again. And it's here in this cooperation that inspired by God, James gives us a tremendous amount of good advice. So his message is really about alignment, okay? Not necessarily detail. There's a part of our brains that is tasked with storing the instructions for often repeated moments, movements, okay? An example uh, which I think most people here know how to drive a car. When we learn to drive, there are lots and lots of horrible grinding noises and nasty smells from the clutch because we don't yet know how to coordinate ourselves, okay? Because we're thinking all the time to press the clutch, release the accelerator, move the gear lever, release the clutch, depress the accelerator the right amount, okay? And what's that horrible sound? After we've done it for a bit, we no longer need to think about it because it becomes a natural action and it's hard to remember why it's so difficult. Okay? At that point, all those little messages have been stored in your brain and that special part that I was telling you about and all you have to do is think it's time to change gear. Boom, and it happens. You don't have to go through that process. And we need to store new Christ-like behaviors in this way too so that they become second nature. But if we don't, study God's word to find out what they are and then practice and practice there will be nothing to store. If we don't study and practice we might find ourselves complaining that oh I'm just not moving forward in my Christian walk. I wonder why that might be. James is so good at explaining what we need to be doing in the practical of way, most practical of ways. So I pray that the study of this book will speak to you and change you in the same way it has me. So, with this idea of spiritual orientation in mind, let's go on to study our text for today. Uh, please, if you have your Bibles, if you, and you haven't done, done so already, um, turn to James chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you adhere to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if a man with gold rings on his fingers and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor person in shabby clothes also comes in, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, Sit here, please, while you say to the poor one, Stand there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil designs? I'd like to start off by asking you just if you could just 
maybe call out some, some of the attributes of God. What are some of his attributes? Okay. Love, yes. Okay, okay. Any more? Okay. Okay, we're getting a good list here. And I want to read out to you the ones that I've got. Okay, he is holy. He is righteous. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. Okay, lots of long words. He is also immutable, eternal, sovereign, perfect, and he is love. What a mighty and awesome God he is. I've said this many times, and I will say it again and again. It seems to me that if, if, if there was a God who was even the tiniest, tiniest bit less powerful than our God, he would be just no God at all. He would be useless. And this is one of the ways that I know that this is the true God that we worship. Okay? Because his characters, the aspects of his character tell me that this has to be the true God. It's not some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. This is a logical, factual thing. It's a bit of an aside, but you'll find that this list and the um, descriptions are all in, included on your, um, your sermon notes. And, and the reason that I did that is because when I looked at them, I thought, well, it's not really appropriate to spend time going through them now. But um, in your quiet times, just have a look at some of these things because they are, they are very, very special, okay? Just think about God being omnipresent, okay? God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point in space with his whole being, yet may act differently in different places, okay? What does that mean? Okay, yeah, wow. That means God is right here inside me right now. Okay, God is in that fan, making that fan go around. And if I start to consider stuff like that, well, maybe I need to start thinking about the way I act, because I'm not act acting in separation from him. He's with me all, all the time. And that's why I want to encourage you, just, just take these things, and, and if you're moved to do so, have a look at them in your quiet times. But let's, let's go on to look at James some more. The point of asking you these is that um, there's one attribute that we might not have thought about, that God is impartial. The dictionary defines that word impartial as not favoring one side more than another, unprejudiced or fair. Now please note that impartial does not ever mean disinterested, because it can be a little bit of a, <laughs> a jump to that one. Although we might not uh, have put a name to it, I'm sure that everybody will recognize on reflection that throughout Scripture there are many uh, um, examples of God's absolute and perfect fairness when dealing with people. People, on the other hand, well, we just aren't like that. We generally start by looking at the outside and then straight away deciding how to deal with this person. And that often means that we deal with them unfairly. I, I'm not any different. Um, when I used to work in the corporate world, a man was judged often by his watch and his pen and his shoes. Okay? And I'm not joking because um, this is the pen that I had and this is the watch, but I'm afraid the shoes have worn out. 
Okay, and there are heaps of other things we use to judge. What about somebody's job? What sort of car do they drive? Do they live in a flash neighborhood? But God is not interested in any of these things. Deuteronomy 10.17 tells us, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who has no favorites, accepts no bribes. And he expects the same of us. And we can read that earlier in Deuteronomy in chapter 1. In rendering judgment, do not consider who a person is. Give ear to the lowly and to the great alike, fearing no man, for judgment is God's. Refer to me any case that is too hard for you, and I will hear it. It's not an idea missing from the New Testament either. Romans 2, verses 9 to 11 reads, Yes, affliction and distress will come upon every human being who does evil. Jew first, and then Greek. But there will be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. Jew first, and then Greek. Ephesians 6 tells us how we ought to be conducting ourselves as we work. Slaves, be obedient to your human masters with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Not only when being watched as carrying favor, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Willingly serving the Lord and not human beings, knowing that each will be requited from the Lord for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Masters, act in the same way towards them and stop bullying, knowing that both they and you have a master in heaven and that with him there is no partiality. Previously we have spoken of the two great commandments, the second of which is of course to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we know that these commandments have the very most highest importance because they were singled out by none other than Jesus himself. God isn't asking us just to have a warm, fuzzy feeling for the bloke next door. That's not what he's asking us to do. God wants us to directly show the light of his love to those around us in its many aspects. So now, my physics lesson for this week I'd like to introduce a thing to you called total internal reflection. Okay? Now, total internal reflection is a, uh, a term used in physics when we're talking about the way that light acts when it passes through a transparent substance. If you shine a light so that the beam is at right angles to the surface, okay? So if we're shining the beam just like this, it'll go straight through, okay? But if you start to move this beam so that it's at an angle to the surface and it gets larger and larger, eventually a point will come when the light actually just bounces off. Although it's a transparent plate or something, it'll, it'll actually bounce right off. And that's what that, that diagram at the top is showing you. If you look at that, you'll see how the light comes in and, and bounces off at a right angle. So that's very interesting, you might say, but irrelevant. <laughs> But you know, it's actually something that we see and we use every day. For example, this physical property makes optical fibers useful and binoculars possible. Because your binoculars, actually if you uh, extended the length of them, they'd be very long to make them work. But they've got little prisms inside that bounce the light backwards and forwards. So that makes them shorter and you don't have this thing out here. Um, if you used broadband or a telephone today, Anybody do that? Bo. 
you're an IT man and you didn't use the telephone. That's shameful. Okay. It's, uh, it's total internal reflection that makes those fibers possible because it's light that's going along those little cables and if they didn't bounce off the edges, well, they wouldn't work. And that's total internal reflection. And then uh, we also have another great example of this turtle in an aquarium. Okay, the reason that we can see his reflection on the surface of the water above him is because of total internal reflection. Now, let me explain how this phenomenon is a good picture for us as Christians. Later on in James 4, when we get there in about 2015, <laughs> we're going to read, you have no idea what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a puff of smoke that appears briefly and then disappears. From God's perspective, our lives are perfectly transparent. They're just a puff of smoke or a vapor. But nonetheless, God shines His light on us all the time, and He wants us to reflect that light to those around. And we know that we are called to reflect God's light to all men, not just those that we like the look and smell of. To reflect effectively is a matter of orientation. If we are correctly angled towards God, then we are going to show His light by total internal reflection. If we aren't properly orientated, then it's just going to go straight through us, and it will have no effect on us or our neighbors. And in my view, you know, really that is just a terrible, terrible waste. An impartial attitude to those around us is a very practical way of reflecting the light of God. We are so used to being judged that an encounter with someone who treats us fairly is going to have some impact. So we should demonstrate this impartiality impartially. Scripture says that we should deal with everyone with the same high standard. Okay? It is a living test of our faith. And let's be asking ourselves just how well we're doing in that test. What do you think? After all this yakking, maybe I should really move on to verse 1 properly. Yes? Okay. My brothers, show no partiality as you adhere to the faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. James deliberately starts by addressing the readers as his brothers. He identifies himself as being subject to the same failings and requirements as all men. And I think that is a good and honest and impartial example of being any teacher of God's word. He wants us to see that showing partiality and genuinely holding faith in Jesus are not things that are at all compatible. You know, they just cannot even be on the same planet, let alone the same room. Because we have already seen how God is utterly impartial, and we are called to be just like him. James's use of the phrase, our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, shows the size of the mismatch. Because when you consider the gloriousness of our Lord, we can see that it's trying to compare a piece of dung with a marvelous golden crown. And moreover, in a few verses, when we get to there in 2013, we're going to see that partiality is also considered a serious sin. When should we be impartial? Well, the way that the Greek is constructed, 
tells us that we are expected to be impartial continuously. There is no time off for good behavior, no impartiality holidays, or moratoriums on partiality. But there are some who God does call us to give special respect to. The aged, okay? those in authority both in the church and generally in society, pastors and elders. At first, I was a little bit puzzled about this because it kind of looks like it's a little bit at odds being impartial. Now, why should I treat some people in a special way? But when I went back to this dictionary definition, it, it sort of helped me out. I'm, and I'm not sure that I've explained it very well, but I'll do my best. The dictionary defines impartial as not favoring one side more than another, unprejudiced or fair. So if I am partial, if I'm the opposite, then I'm going to unreasonably favor one side. I'm going to be prejudiced and, and I'm going to be unfair about it as well. Do you think that this is the way I ought to treat uh, an elder of the church or an older person that I meet on the street? Well, I don't think so. It's just a little extension of what we were asked to do earlier, which is that we are called to treat everybody with the same high standard. Okay? Now, I just hope I get this word right. The, the word partiality is uh, translated from the Greek prosopolempsia. And I practiced that a lot of times, but I knew I was going to blunder when I was up here. And it literally means receiving the face. And in some of the commentaries I saw, it, it spoke about lifting up the face. And, and I'm sure all of us have seen some picture of a person actually like taking somebody's face and lifting it up in that way. It's a word that's only found in Christian writings. Perhaps because the practice of external judgment was so normal that it just wasn't considered to be worth a special description. But when we say today, don't judge a book by its cover, we're really saying, don't just receive the face. Because even the world knows now that we must take time off to look for a person's true abilities and character and not write them off based only on first impressions. If this is the case for the world, then how much more ought we as Christians to be doing this? If we're looking for some examples of impartial behavior, well, we don't have to look any further than Jesus because our Lord showed no concern for social standards. He met with every person right at the specific physical and emotional place that was needed. He met with wealthy Jewish leaders and beggars. He met with high priests and prostitutes and he went into their place, right into their space no matter how fancy or poor it might have been. Jesus looked inward to the heart and soul, and he ministered there. Isn't that a great example for us? When we look at Jesus' ancestry, we find an equally impartial mixture. You know, for sure, there were very notable people like Abraham and David and Solomon, but there are also some much more common folk like Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. In a way that we must be ever thankful for, God shows no partiality in the matter of salvation. The man who becomes a Christian at an early age and the one who repents on his deathbed will enjoy the same forgiveness of sin and the same entry to heaven. And there's a parable about this. 
um, about the landowner who paid labourers who were hired at the end of the day the same wage as those taken on at the beginning of the day. And it's a great privilege that we do not deserve. But this is the miracle of the gospel. God calls all men to be reconciled to him, irrespective of age, class, race, or any kind of division that you can imagine. While it is amazing that God can ignore the things that men think are so important, it's beyond description that he could provide a way to forgive the insult of the sin that we all commit against him. Now he's done this with a gift. The gift of his son Jesus who died on a cross to take the punishment due for you and me. This is a gift we could never afford. There is no way we could pay the debt on our own. But if we repent and accept Christ as our Savior, we can have confidence that God will impartially give us His salvation. I'd like to ask you to imagine just for a moment that entry was worked to heaven was worked out with the same systems that the world uses to qualify us for various things. What chance, <laughs> chance would we have? I think it would be a great, oh, I've got the pen. Praise God for Jesus. Let's move on now to verses 2 to 4, where James gives us an example of discriminatory behavior to show us the consequences of that error. For if a man with gold rings on his fingers and, and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor person in shabby clothes also comes in, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, Sit here, please, while you say to the poor one, Stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not become distinctions? Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil designs? Well, I'm sure you'll be happy to know this is my last page because this is not a complicated passage. I hope you won't be disappointed that there aren't any fine points of Greek to bring out and dazzle you with. But nonetheless, if we pay attention to this, it is most convicting. There should be no circumstances in which we would want to be seen by God as judges with evil designs because we are then inviting His much more terrible judgment. When I was talking to a friend a while back about preaching on the book of James. He told me of a wonderful little illustration he'd arranged when delivering a message on this very passage. It seems that one of his congregation was a talented makeup artist and actor. So this gentleman was conscripted to dress himself up as a tramp, and then, smelling bad and looking ragged, come and join the service during worship. Of course, this caused a bit of a fuss, and uh, that fuss gave meaning to the sermon a bit later in a very pointed way, and I just wonder what we might have done in the same circumstances. It is my earnest prayer that we would be moved by this clear direction from God's word to live differently in the way that we deal with all men, to demonstrate God's impartiality and the great hope of his salvation to those around us. As we move around day to day, what are we going to do from here on that shows us to be impartial? Let's be brave enough to ask ourselves that question and then act on the answer. Let us pray.
Father, you, your word says that it's a two-edged sword. And Lord, just like that sword, it, it, uh, it pierces us deeply. And like a sword that pierces us, it should leave a mark. Lord, I pray earnestly that we would go from here and not behave just like normal people in the world, that inspired by your words, we would go out and show the light of your gospel to those around us. Lord, not as a performance, but as a reflection of your character. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.